Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pilucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gellif. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we're going to kick off our discussion by talking about a rather shocking legal decision in Italy um, a few weeks ago. I think I heard of the place. Yeah. (laughs) Ring a bell, Massimo? (laughs) Um, So, you know, feel free to jump in and correct my pronunciation (laughs) here, as I'm sure you do. so in 2009, there was a pretty severe earthquake um, in a city in Italy called L'Aquila. Um, several hundred people, uh, there were several hundred casualties. And um, just recently, six Italian scientists and a former government official were sentenced to six years in prison each for failing to uh, appropriately warn the public about the severity of the coming earthquake. Um, so this decision... This legal decision has uh, sent shockwaves through uh, much of the world, but especially the scientific community, because of the implications that failure to predict, uh, you know, very uncertain natural disasters uh, can hold uh, can can be held uh, against a scientist legally. Right. Um, and so it sparked a lot of debate about uh, to what extent it's reasonable to expect scientists to be able to predict uncertain things like earthquakes and, you know, what the legal ramifications should be. So we're going to talk about this case, but then expand the discussion into a broader uh, discussion of what scientists' responsibility is or should be to the public when it comes to uh, risky, uncertain scenarios. Right. One of, one of the people that was convicted was uh, Bernardo de Bernardinis, um, who was the uh, vice, former vice president of the Civil Protection Agency, the Italian Civil Protection Agency. I actually knew him. Uh, really? he is a, he's a geophysicist uh, by training, and he was at some point, I think, the head of the uh, National Geophys- Geophysical Institute. Um, oh, and wow. I also had met very briefly um, uh, Enzo Boschi, who is another one of the, the people that was um, uh, convicted in, the, in this case. I don't know either wow. one of them well, but, but I know their reputation, and they're, 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 they're reputed to be very good scientists. And, you know, typically that means that they know what they're talking about, but I, well, the case... The case is interesting for a variety of reasons, I think. Um, first of all, uh, it may be certainly the first time in recent history that something like this happens, um, um, that scientists are being held responsible for what they said in, in public, essentially. And we, need to, we can talk about what, what exactly they've been held responsible for. So, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, you know, our collaborator at Rationally Speaking, at the Rationally Speaking blog, Guillaume Pollock, also wrote a, a recent blog entry um, uh, on, on his take about this whole thing. And he pointed out that, for instance, one of the things that happened was that the uh, AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, did write a letter uh, to the Italian president on, uh, on behalf of the, of the scientists that were on trial 
And uh, the AAAS claimed that the basis for the indictment was that the scientists failed to alert the population to the impending disasters. That's not quite true. Right. The, what actually happened was that the scientists were, were asked, the Bernardinis in particular, on television, on national television, he was asked after the, there had been some tremors in, uh, in the area of L'Aquila, which is in central, central eastern Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually the same exact height as Rome, but on the other side of the Apennines. And... Um, uh, there have been some tremors, and that that is an area known for being prone to earthquakes. So it's not like this was a big surprise to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but of course, rarely there is a big, a, an actual big one, you know, devastating as devastating as the one that uh, hit in two thousand nine. Now, what the Bernardinis said, uh, when prompted by a question from a journalist, was that the tremors were, in, in his opinion, were not likely to be indicative of a major one to come. In fact, if anything, they could help help because they could diffuse um, you know, the, the, the seismic sea, uh, tension that had accumulated uh, in the substrates, in the rocks in the substrates below L'Aquila. And therefore, that people, uh, you know, that there was basically not, not much of a chance. Not a, not, not, it wasn't likely that a major earthquake would, would um, break out. Now, on top of that, prompted by a journalist um, sort of quip, basically, uh, the Bernadines said, yeah, so the local inhabitants should just relax and open a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, was an offhand joke, which turned out to be the tragic uh, once that, in fact, a lot of people apparently stayed instead of evacuating mm-hmm. the area. And that's why we got, you know, at least in part, that's the reason why we got um, several hundred people died. So it's not exactly that the scientists are being held responsible for not predicting, predicting an earthquake, which mm-hmm. anybody who knows anything about earthquakes will tell you that it is, in fact, impossible to predict an earthquake as mm-hmm. an individual event. As, as a matter of frequency in certain areas, yes, we know perfectly well. Uh, which areas of the world are more prone or less prone to earthquakes. But as an individual event, that is essentially we cannot do this, at least not at the moment. Mm-hmm. So that is, But that isn't the acquisition. The acquisition basically was for downplaying the risks. And so the mm-hmm. whole case hinges on whether the scientists downplayed the risks while they should have known better um, or whether they and, didn't Sorry, do just to, to clarify, yeah. downplaying the risks here means... Uh, making the empirical claim that it was very unlikely or urging people to not take precautions? Ah, that's a good question. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that what the Bernardinis actually said was that it was very unlikely that this was a, a harbinger of, of a major quake. Actually, he even said during the interview that, yes, occasionally these things do happen before a major quake, but it is, in fact, we think that it is unlikely. And it's true. He's, he's, he, technically, that is correct. I mean, uh, as uh, our colleague um, uh, Ian points out, uh, you can look at it at, at this issue from a Bayesian perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between the probability of the tremor given a large quake and the probability of a large quake given a tremor, mm-hmm. right? So the probability that of a tremor uh, before the quake, given that then afterwards there was a large quake, it's very high. Mm-hmm. But the probability of a large quake happening, given that you have observed tremors, is actually very low. In fact, yeah. we know how mm-hmm. low it is. It's between 1% and 3%. And, of course, the latter is the probability that is relevant and the one that Bernard, the Bernardinis was talking about. So, technically, it was, in fact, correct. It, uh, given the tremors, the probability of a major quake is, in fact, low. Now, I, yeah. there's a difference, of course, between saying that, which nobody, I think, can, could impart because it's like, okay, well, that's, that's what the science tells you. Mm-hmm. And then going on the further step and saying, therefore, people should not evacuate and... They, you know, they're okay. Uh, they, they can stay there. They're likely to be okay. 
That is an actual, uh, that's, a, that's an advice on a policy, essentially, which the Bernese was making because, in fact, he had been, as I said, the former pre- uh, mm-hmm. uh, head of, of the, um, you know, essentially the Civil Protection Agency. And so he was doing that in, in that capacity. Um, and, you know, he had been playing that role in the past. So, but there is, in fact, a, an interesting difference between what the scientists can say safely and what the sort of practical policy uh, has to be uh, following that advice. And, and the two are not exactly, uh, you know, tightly interconnected. You, you want your policy, of course, to be informed by the best science, but the best science doesn't necessarily dictate a particular policy. You could decide that, well, even if the chances of a earthquake, a major earthquake is low, uh, still we're going to evacuate um, because... Uh, we think that the risk is still too high compared to the possible damage or you know, whatever. There, there are other issues that can come in uh, other than just the risk of the earthquake. There, there is, you know, if the earthquake actually does occur, what is the chances that how many people are going to die mm-hmm. or how many buildings are going to collapse? If it doesn't occur, then how much money is it going to be wasted in the evacuation process and time and that sort of stuff? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a risk assessment issue that goes beyond the simple risk, risk of the earthquake itself. This, this confusion over uh, the inverse probabilities or conditioned probabilities reminds me of the, uh, the O.J. Simpson case when uh, Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz uh, argued that among men who beat their wives, only a, a very small percent, like a tenth of one percent, go on to murder them. Um, <laughs> but in, in a letter to uh, Nature, the statistician I.J. Good pointed out that that's not actually the relevant probability. The relevant probability is conditioned on... Uh, husbands who batter their wives and whose wives are then murdered. So uh, that relevant probability uh, is actually one half. And one half of such cases, uh, when w- wives are, are beaten, the husbands are the murderers. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Um, that kind of, com- of confusion is, is actually very common. But you would think that um, that, that is sort of the, the kind of technical issue that could and should be sorted out in, in, a, in a court of law. Right. Although now, I, I've yeah. just been so disillusioned over time by the uh, degree to which uh, like probability and logic are taken into account in, in court cases. Yeah, that's true. Now, this, this court case, by the, way, by the way, my understanding is was decided by a judge, not it by was, a jury, yeah. which is actually likely a better situation because juries are notoriously even more unreliable. <laughs> oh, my God. Massimo, <laughs> one of my friends uh, who is an, an economist was on jury duty uh, a few years ago. Lord knows how an economist remained on the jury because usually they get weeded out early right. on. But uh, it was about a, a medical negligence case, actually kind of similar to, or, I mean, analogous in some ways to this case that we're discussing. And the question was whether the doctors should have run a certain test that would have revealed that the patient had this disease and that then they could have saved him. So was it negligent for them to not run the test? And it was kind of a rare condition. So it was, uh, you know, pretty arguable that the doctors, you know, had no good reason to think that this was likely enough that they should run the test. And, and to my friend, that was pretty obvious from the testimony, but he just has such a difficult time in the jury room um, because other jurors kept, like, he would make that argument and other jurors would say things like literally verbatim, you don't understand. Somebody died here. <laughs> That's right. Like, that was the argument. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, actually, yeah, if, if I may cite um, Ian's, our colleague, at Rationally Speaking, he does a good job at going through what he calls uh, huge cognitive problems from the point of view of the audience. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, and in this case, in, you know, in in a similar case, would have been a situation also from the from the jury. Although, of course, we cannot we cannot assume that the judge himself wasn't um, necessarily at fault here in terms of the same kind of cognitive biases. But Ian Does- Ian lists several of them which are um, very relevant to these kinds of cases. One is neglect of probability. Mm-hmm. You know, don't give me the odds. Is it, is it safe or not? You know, I want a simple answer. Is it yes or no? Well, I can't give you a simple a simple answer. I have to give you odds. But most people don't think in terms of odds or had difficulties thinking in terms of odds. See, and, how, uh, see how much money is made by the casinos as a result, for instance. Well, ironically, I think the understanding that people can't think in terms of odds or, you know, will will interpret whatever odds you give them into like a yes or no answer and then hold you liable if or you know blame you if things turn out if something happens that you said was unlikely that knowledge i think makes people like doctors unwilling to give any probabilities at all right. this is what i've found it's been really frustrating actually um i you know when i when a doctor tells me there's a chance of something like a chance of a complication of a procedure or a, a chance of transmitting an infection or some or so on i i usually try to press them to tell me how much of a chance there is and they say something to the effect of, well, it varies, or I can't say. Right. And I have to just, like, draw the probability out of them, like, more than 50%, right. like, less than 1%, right. and they still won't say. Which is one of the, the interesting complications from, from this kind of this case uh, uh, for the L'Aquila, um, from the L'Aquila earthquake that we need to consider a little further. That is, what is, what is going to be the, the chilling effect, essentially, yeah. on, on expertise testimony. But, but let I me think go I through. derailed you. I'm sorry. Well, no, that's the other okay. biases, I wanted to, I wanted to through, hear what Yeah, the Ian, other biases that, that Ian I didn't lists. read his blog post, and I also came up with a list of biases. Ah. So I'm curious how... <laughs> so we can compare we, them. Yeah. So the second one he mentions is the denial of personal responsibility, as in nobody informed us uh, of the risks of you know waterfall kayaking or something like that. Well... You know, uh, there is risks. Certain things carry certain risks, and it's up to you, uh, perhaps, to 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 inform yourself as a, as an intelligent user of things. Uh, the bad guy bias. Uh, my son died on an operating table, and someone needs to be held responsible. This uh-huh, is you know, what you yeah. were saying earlier, right? Now you don't understand that someone, someone died. died. Well, yes, yes, and that's very unfortunate. But you know, that doesn't mean that there is an automatic answer to, to where the blaming is going to go. Um, the fourth one that Ian lists is hindsight or outcome bias and moral luck. Yes, no? I was so also how going to you, talk about that. Yeah, so how can you say it was the right call based on what you knew when 40 families are grieving? Well, again, it's unfortunate 40 families are grieving, but um, you know, it is a matter of that was still the right call at the time given what you knew at that particular time. Uh, of course, with hindsight, it turned out to be the wrong call, but that's not, that's well, not it, the way you want to... It wanna, turned out to have been incorrect. I mean... It, it turned out to have been incorrect, but it, it right. might have been probabilistically still correct. Yeah, that's right. So it's hard to. So there's a yeah. difference between making a judgment call at the moment in which you have the information available before you see the consequences, mm-hmm. right? And then after the events have unfolded. I mean, obviously after the fact, it's the the, the call is a hun- with hindsight is 2020, and you can you, you know whether the call turned out to be right or not. Yeah. But there- the question in, usually in in play here is when whether the call was correct at the time, meaning based on the information that the agents had at that time. Yes. Was that the best way to call the, the, the situation? Yeah, so. there. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sh- I know you have more biases more. to talk yes. about. Okay. Well, I go ahead. Okay. okay. I just wanted to comment on hindsight bias um, because I just love the demonstrations of hindsight bias. They're so striking. And so, so there's like two ways to demonstrate hindsight bias. The standard way um, in cognitive scientific studies is to give two statistically equivalent groups of subjects um, scenarios, uh, and then. One, one group of subjects is told what actually happened and asked, you know, how, how 
you know, obvious you think it, it should have been that this was going to happen. And then the second group is just, you know, told all the facts that were available before the event and asked, what do you think is going to happen? Um, and people in the first group invariably say, oh, well, this is obvious. Like, of course, people should have known. And then the second group, you know, statistically equivalent group of people, they could not actually predict what was going to happen. So uh, in one in one experiment based on an actual legal case, um, people were asked to estimate the probability of flood damage caused by a blockage of, of a drawbridge in the city. And the control group was told only the background information which the city knew when it decided not to hire a bridge watcher. And then the experimental group was given that information plus the fact that the flood actually occurred. Um, and 76% of the control group concluded that a flood was so unlikely that no precautions are, were needed. Um, but then in the experimental group who, who was told that the flood actually did occur, 57% of them said that the flood was so likely that failure to take precautions was legally negligent. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, the two additional biases that Ian uh, pointed out was the, the idea of a moral grandstanding. So, you know, no risk to our children is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds very nice, but in fact, that's baloney. Um, we always live with, with risk, no matter what we do. You know, you get into a yeah. car and there is a risk. Uh, you know, associated with almost any any activity that you do, even with not doing anything, uh, you have there's a risk. A risk yeah. of, you know, there's a, there's a risk that something is falling on your head when you're standing still. Yeah. So this idea that, oh, especially when it comes to children, particularly, it, this is this is psychologically plays very very strongly uh, because, of course, um, uh, you know, the death of, of young young um, people, young uh, or children, is always psychologically has a high impact. But yeah. still. Um, th- to say that you know, well, this is unacceptable. It, it makes no sense. That, yep. that, that's the whole. That's the whole issue about risk. You have to decide what risk is acceptable given the situation, given the circumstances, given the resources, and so on and so forth. But that risk is never going to go to zero. Yeah, no and matter what you do. I, I think that your point about there's no way to completely play it safe. You know, even if you stay home, you can, you know, still something can fall on your head is a a really relevant point here because by warning the public, you can cause a panic. You know, you have a lot more people like traveling and trying to leave town. And I think I I haven't done the calculation, but I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that there would be a rise in, you know, probabilistically a rise in casualties just as a result of the panic. Right. And not only that, but in this particular, in this particular case, um, you know, we just seen a similar situation uh, with with the recent floodings in the New York, New Jersey, and Long Island area because of, of the hurricane, Hurricane Sandy. So even though the authorities in several of those areas had actually uh, issued mandatory evacuation orders, a lot of people stayed. Yeah. And, you know, they made the choice of, well, I don't care. I, I don't trust the authorities or whatever. Or I think I can weather the storm, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Then somebody dies. And the question is, you know, even if you actually have taken this, as a, the, from the point of view of authority or government, if you had taken the correct steps, you said, okay, you need to evacuate, some people are going to stay behind. So it's not quite clear that, for instance, uh, what, what is the percentage of those 309 people that died that actually are the result of a mistake, assuming that there was a mistake, made in the evaluations of the scientists. Because some of those people would have stayed behind anyway, mm-hmm. and we don't know what the percentage, what that percentage was. Uh, you know, depending on, on what the trust of the population is in the authorities in general, in mm-hmm. science in general, and so on and so forth, that percentage may be very small or maybe very large. And there, there is, it's really hard to tell. And, of course, when you're talking about assigning blame, that is part of the deal. Because, you know, the question there is how many people actually die because of the alleged uh, mistaken uh, advice. One more from, from Ian, and that is the crying probable wolf effect. 
the, you know, as in uh, the last two evacuations were false alarms. I'm not going anywhere. This is what I was just talking about in oh, terms of not right, not, not right. evacuating and things like that. Right. That's a great one. I didn't come up with that one. Yeah, Good job, so Ian. Th- that, that's, that's also in play because the human psychology is, is, is what it is. And yeah. so some people say, well, I heard this before and, you know, we survived the, the, the hurricane last time. So we're going to do fine, just fine this time, except that, of course, this time the situation is completely different or it's relevantly different so that you know, certain damages or the risk is going, is going to be higher. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, oh, I just I had forgotten to say when we were talking about the hindsight bias that this case reminded me a little bit of what happened after 9-11 when some people pointed to pieces of intelligence that had suggested, you know, that were received before right. 9-11 happened that suggested the you know, possibility of a terrorist attack like this. And they said, how could the government not have acted that was so negligent? Right. Um, and, you know, that's understandable that they would react that way. But there's so many other pieces of intelligence about things that never actually came to play uh, or, you know, came to pass. And yep. so it's much harder to decide, uh, given especially how strong hindsight bias is, how credible we should have thought that intelligence was before right. 9-11. That's right. Ian's uh, also point brought, brought up exactly that example. Uh, you just have to believe me that I didn't read his blog post. <laughs> I will, I've been I do, too busy. I do. <laughs> I do. Um, uh, but, but so, yeah, that's that's another important thing, which which brings, again, the idea of you need to estimate whether a particular call was reasonable at the time, not with the hindsight. Because with hindsight, you know what happened. But now you have a hell of a lot more information than the person or people that were making the decision at that time. And, mm-hmm. of course, it's difficult to put yourself back in the mind of, of people at the time before the event happened and, and see exactly what kind of information they had access to, how they process that information, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. So that, that, I think, is the major but I, I, I think it might be the major culprit here for this misunderstanding between what is a fair way to, to, to uh, establish blame and what is an unfair way of establishing blame. Now, that said, um, let's take a look, I think, for, for, for a second from the, at the issue from the other perspective. And you know, ask, let's ask seriously whether, in fact, the scientists in questions do have a blame. I, I think that uh, a degree of blame. I think that six years, for whatever blame they had, uh, the, the, from whatever they can be blamed for, six years in prison is far exceeding uh, whatever the likely yeah. blame that we're talking about here is. And I think that's it, insane. Just as a side note, they are appealing, right? Yes, they are okay. appealing. And according to Italian law, nothing comes into effect, goes into effect until two, the, the process of appeal is, is being exhausted. And there's two levels of appeals before, uh, beyond the first degree conviction. Do you have so, any sense of how long that takes? I'm just curious. Um, that that varies uh, significantly depending on whether the the, the um, um, proceedings are going to be put put on a fast track or not. Uh, but but let me just give you an, an example. The former uh, prime minister of Italy, uh, um, um, Berlusconi, mm-hmm. uh, has been convicted several times of several crimes and yes. never done a single day of jail because either the appeals run out before the um, um, the uh, statute of limitation run out. Or, you know, something like that happened. So it basically never got to the end of the process. So, yeah, it can take years. So I don't think that we are talking about an actual danger anytime soon, for sure, for these people to go to jail. But they were also barred from public office. Oh, uh, right, ever right. again, holding mm-hmm. public office ever day, again, which means that presumably most, since Italian, it, Italian scientists are usually government employees, this means that these people their are doing a job. Over? Yeah, their career is over. Wow. Um, so, so there are serious consequences. Now, as I said, I think that regardless of how one comes down on the actual blame, uh, six years seems like outrageous. Um, 
but but I think the more interesting question in uh, as far as we're concerned is whether there was in fact any blame or all, or, or or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that if there is any blame is in the communication of the information that the Bernardinis and colleagues did to the journalists and therefore to the public. Um, because, um, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, technically this is what's going to happen, what, what, what is my best estimate for the probability of an earthquake and so on and so forth. But that's not the way they put it, number one. They didn't explain, for instance, what is the difference between those two probabilities from Bayesian perspective mm-hmm. that we're talking about earlier. Now, you don't typically expect people, scientists, when they talk to the public or, or, or to, the, to journalists to bring in Bayesian analysis um, as, as a way to communicate because that's not really a particularly effective way of communicating to the public. But it is possible that the mistake, if there was a mistake here, was in communicating things in, in a hazard way, in a way that was not clear, and then opened them up to blame once that all the tapes of the interviews were played back. Now, that's a distinct question, of course, from saying, well, had they actually explained things correctly, um, would the public have understood things? Um, yeah, I was right? just going to say, yes. it right. sounds like you're, you're pointing out a thing that they could have done more strategically for their own benefit, but, but not necessarily to lead to a better outcome overall for the public. Um, I mean, uh, at least yeah, not justifiably yes and done no. it. Right, yes and no. So, yes, at, at the very minimum, if, if they had actually communicated in, in a clear, most you know, correct way, technically the most correct way, they probably would have you know, been more likely to save their ass, essentially, right. from a legal perspective. Right. Um, that's, that's true. But the question, the broader question is, to what extent can the scientists themselves being blamed for a misunderstanding on the part of the public or the part of the journalists of something that they actually have said clearly and technically correct, right? I mean, after Mm -hmm. all, yes, you do have to be uh, 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 conscious of who your audience is and therefore talk to your audience appropriately and all that sort of stuff. But once you do that, um, it's really out of your hands at that point. You know, what the the audience understands uh, depends on their own uh, kind of biases, their own uh, background knowledge in, in, in the area, their own trust in science and authorities and so on and so forth, over which you have absolutely no control. Yeah, although, yeah, I agree. Uh, at a certain point, and, and there is a spectrum, so the threshold is fuzzy, but at a certain point, if you have enough confidence about how the public is going to, or how your audience is going to interpret what you're saying, then it's it's hard for you to, you know, just throw up your hands and say, well, you know, I sure. I said the correct thing. Like, if I, so I run into this problem all the time when I talk to the public about rationality. Um, when I use the word rationality, I intend it to have this the same sense it does when it's used formally in, in cognitive science, where, uh, I mean, I won't like define it right now, but essentially it's different from the way the public thinks of rationality. So I don't, just as one example, um, when I use rationality, it refers to um, some coordination of your intuitive and your analytical decision-making systems, whereas mm-hmm. the public, as I've learned, co- thinks of rationality as being just about the analytical decision-making uh-huh, right. system. And, you know, <laughs> if yes. I, I could use the word in you know the way sure. I mean it, but I just know 99% of the time I'm, that's going to lead to huge confusion because they're thinking right. of it a different way. So right. it, the onus really is on me, given that I know how they're likely to yeah, understand me correct. to explain what I mean. No, that's a good point. I mean, I have a similar experience whenever uh, I hear talking people talking about uh, logic. So, oh, this is the logical thing to do. What they really 
people no normally mean is that is the reasonable thing to right, do, right. which is not that's, the technical implication yeah. of logical. I mean, it's not like they're making a deductive argument there. That, that totally happens with rational too. I think to most people, when when you when they say that's not rational, what they mean is I disagree with you. Well, that's, that's even worse, right? <laughs> what that's right. they mean? <laughs> that is even worse, right? So, so you're correct. In that case, there is therefore an additional degree of so w w what we're doing basically we're unpacking the possibilities of blame here right mm -hmm. so assuming that the scientist in question said something that is technically correct which from what i understand they did therefore they cannot be blamed for that but then there is a question of how they communicated uh, that information to the public and then there is the, the, the further question that you raised of well but knowing if they knew uh, because these, in fact, are people who are used to talk to the public on a regular basis, especially the Bernardinis. Mm -hmm. um, given that what they know about how the public is going to take that information, was that even the best, even though it was perhaps technically correct, was that the best way to present that information? So there, I think there may be some degree of blame. Wait, but, sorry, it still seems like the, to, to the extent they screwed up, it was, you know, in covering their own asses, as you said. Is there any way that you think, for the public's sake, they, they should have phrased things differently? Well, for the public's say, sake, you want to explain, as a scientist, you want to explain things in a way that, is, that, that covers all the above bases, right? That is correct, mm -hmm. number one. That is understandable to a you know, generally well-educated person, but also that is tailored, that is explained in a way that is actually tailored to the particular audience because you cannot assume that all audiences are equally knowledgeable or equally, uh, you know, well-versed in a, in, a, in a particular area. So, so you need to tailor your message to the, to the particular audience. Now, most of the times, if you don't do that as a scientist, there's no consequence. Right? If you go on, somebody goes on TV and explains, let's say, string theory in a way that he thinks is understandable to the public and nobody gets any, any idea what the heck string theory is about, well, so what? Your life is probably not going to change whether you understand or don't understand string theory. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're talking about the, the, uh, an actionable piece of scientific information, as in this case, you know, should I or should I not live, leave the, the, the building because there's likely to be an earthquake or there's not likely to be an earthquake, then that's a practical decision that clearly carries a higher degree of responsibility in terms of explaining things uh, as in as understandable a way as possible. So I think that if there is any blame here, it is a question of did the scientists in question explain things as best as could have been done given the particular audience that we're talking to. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, however, again, in terms of, of the um, sort of the broad consequences, like remember the distinction we made at the beginning between um, the scientist giving the best information that is possible from a scientific perspective and then the person as a civil servant, in the case of the Bernardinis, giving actual practical advice. The two are not exactly the same because... There are other, if in the decision of whether to uh, evacuate or not an area, the, it's not that the only variable is the likelihood of an earthquake. Right? Mm -hmm. There are other variables. There are variables that, there, first of all, well, it's, it's likely that there has been an earthquake, a major earthquake, fine. Uh, what about the infrastructure? Is the infrastructure there you know, likely to, to sustain that kind of hit or not? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned this because I was thinking about how the assignment of blame to the scientists in this case calls up uh, some of my favorite philosophical debates about what, what we can sensibly mean by cause. Like, it might seem very intuitive right. that, you know, when 
when you strike a match and there, you know, a, a fire is lit, that the striking of the match caused the fire. But there are other things that if they weren't there, uh, the fire would not have been lit. Like right. if there was no oxygen, the you know, even if you did strike the match with no oxygen, the fire wouldn't have been lit. So does right. that mean the oxygen also caused the fire? Right. Um, what about the fact that if the match was wet, the fire wouldn't have been lit? Does that mean that the lack of water caused the fire? Right. And so, you know, if, if the earthquake were... Um, the result of a giant meteor hitting uh, the earth, that that's the kind of discrete event that we usually refer to as a cause, as opposed to these like background conditions like oxygen and dryness that we don't right. usually refer to as causes. Right. And so, you know, if, if the, if the earthquake were caused by some discrete event like that, that's like more clearly the sort of thing we call cause, but the scientists failure to give a specific uh, warning to the public seems I don't know, that seems a little more akin to, like, uh, government officials' failure to build stronger buildings. So, in right, what sense exactly. are the scientists more a cause of the casualties of the earthquake than the government officials are for failing to build stronger buildings? That's right. Now, and the other, the other thing is, whose decision was it to advise the public? Because my understanding is, I haven't double-checked on this, but my understanding is that Bernardinis was the ex-president of the, of the uh, civilian agency. Uh, in question, so presumably there was somebody who was actually in charge of giving the evacuation order. Oh, that's and, a good question. I don't. And, that right, didn't come I mean, up in any of the articles right. I read. Which so, is confusing so the question now. is, you know, who actually was in charge? Because this this happened during an interview on on, on television. So, you know, uh, fine. That certainly has consequences. I mean, I don't want to say that scientists who go on television giving advice uh, shouldn't be held responsible if that advice call, turns out to cause uh, death or destruction. But on the other hand, here we're talking about, particularly in a, in a European country uh, like Italy, mass, m- many Western European countries are very structured from that perspective. I mean, there is a, there is a series of agencies that do uh, uh, make decisions about, you know, things like evacuations and, and uh, you know, first uh, uh, responders and that sort of stuff, just like we, we saw recently again in New York and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Whose responsibility actually was it? I mean, are we now saying that, well, the people who made the decision not to call for an evacuation did it because they listened to the TV show where scientists were saying something? I mean, is that the way? Well, is so, that the proper that's way? also on them. I mean. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, is, is that the proper way to go about it? I mean, shouldn't these, the people who made the decision not to call for an evacuation have actually called directly, for instance, the scientists in question, you engaged scientists in an official uh, you know, capacity as opposed to just listening to uh, a, a, an interview. It's like, it's like th- th- there's all sorts of other possibilities there that that complicate this thing uh, significantly. And I'm sure, you know, I haven't read the proceedings of the of the of the trial. I'm sure that some of this did come up. But you would think that the more things like this come up, the less likely you are to fairly put the, the blame squarely on the shoulders of, you know, whoever did the interview, the scientists that did the interview on, on television. It seems like the more, the more these issues you bring up, the more the responsibility gets sort of diffused. Mm-hmm. But again, the public does want a culprit. Right. And so somebody has to pay, uh, as Ian <laughs> put it in, in, in his blog. I- now, should we talk about for a second in terms of the sort of more generally the kind of uh, chilling effect that, that this kind of issue, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, of of experience can have on ed- not only scientific advice in general to the public, mm-hmm. but, s- but just expert advice in general. Yeah, right? I I was thinking about how there's kind of this trade-off. So yes, it, I, I totally agree. It has a, this sort of thing has a chilling effect on science um, and on ep- expert advice, um, and I think 
it maybe it's not obvious immediately, but um, I definitely think that the result of that chilling effect is not just negative for the scientists and experts, but it's negative for the public. And that there's this right. trade-off between um, you know wanting the best outcome overall and wanting to minimize deaths or harm overall, and versus wanting to reduce the amount to which you feel culpable for deaths or harm. And so, you know, if you really want to never feel like you're, you know, responsible or or culpable for causing harm, let's say you're uh, a food manufacturer. Um, You want to make sure you're never liable for someone who's allergic to nuts eating one of your foods and having an allergic reaction. And let's say the chance that somehow, let's say you don't manufacture any nuts or anything with nuts in your factory, but who knows, maybe like one of your factory workers will be eating peanuts one day and like will touch something. There's, yeah. there's some tiny chance, right? Yeah. So you as a food manufacturer, there aren't that many people with you know, deadly peanut allergies out there. So it's probably in your best interest to just put a warning on everything you make saying there's a chance that, you know, this might have traces of nuts on, yeah. on it. And so, you know, if everyone thinks that way, if all the food manufacturers think that way and they just choose to cover their asses rather than try to give a realistic estimate of how unlikely it is that their food is contaminated with nuts, then you essentially wash out your ability to provide any information about risk to the public because you're just covering your ass. So now, right. you know, people have to just sort of take a stab in the dark because they have no estimate, no information about the probabilities. Um, and so now more people, you know, actually end up... Uh, eating foods that are that were much more likely to be contaminated with nuts because those are indistinguishable from the ones that were extremely unlikely to be contaminated with nuts. And ironically, coming from uh, a European country, in particular from Italy, as you know, mm-hmm. um, I always found very strange that it is the American culture that tend to be litigious in that way. Then you know, people sue um, uh, you know, ulcers for all sorts of reasons. And as a result, what you get is this bizarre... Uh, you know, warnings about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for instance, in your toaster, don't bring it in your shower. I mean, nobody in his right mind would bring a toaster in the shower. But evidently somebody did and some something happened and the manufacturer now has to come up with this lengthy list of absurd, um, uh, you know, sort of warnings because otherwise uh, there's going to be legal consequences. So the interesting thing here is that we definitely want to get away as far as possible from that sort of situation, which was not typical until this case of countries like Italy and this case may open up actually a situation mm. a trend into that into that direction mm-hmm. where people now not just scientists but you know anybody who makes anything that could potentially potentially be harmful in any way uh, are going to say well okay there's a risk of death from using this object exactly. you just put that on everything doesn't matter exactly. what it is and now your assets are covered legally and you know exactly. we all have no information about so risk so as you were saying you know, the, the, the trade off there is that essentially you lose the public loses um, because mm-hmm. you don't have any actionable information anymore left. Like, like your case early on of, of, of the doctor who wouldn't tell you what the chances are of yeah. certain consequences. It just tells you that there are some chance. There's a chance that. Well, a chance that. It's like my grandmother cooking pasta and, say, and telling me that, that you need to put in a pinch of salt. Well, a pinch is not a unit of measure. <laughs> you know, tell me how many milligrams. Now I'll be fine. But a pinch is just a little too vague. Um, so it's that, that I think is what, what the, the, the long-term potential uh, consequence of these kind of cases is going to be, and it's, it's not going to be good for anybody. The scientists are going to be extra careful, uh, and, and the public is going to be uh, losing valuable information from expertise. And we're already living in a society, particularly American society, where expertise, scientific expertise isn't exactly well-received anyway, mm-hmm. witness, I don't know, climate change and evolution um, as a couple of cases. 
so the idea that this is going to get even worse, uh, it's, it's um, because of these kind of, of, of cases. And, and then that, that situation is spreading to European countries as well. Uh, it's certainly not a good, um, good prospect to look forward to. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a slightly less controversial case that, uh, or sorry, slightly more controversial case that occurred to me when I was uh, thinking about the earthquake issue. Oh, I was going to say, we need to uh, finish on a, on a more controversial thing, not yeah. a less controversial Yeah, thing. and maybe, maybe this would actually be a good subject for a future podcast, but this uh, trade-off between um, wanting to reduce overall harm and wanting to not be responsible for harm right. uh, comes up, I think, in the FDA's decisions about whether to approve new and you know not thoroughly tested drugs. The mm-hmm. FDA does not want to be responsible right. for approving a drug and having people take it and die because you know there was uh, it turned out to be har- harmful. But by delaying uh, the release of the drug um, in order for more trials to be conducted, plenty of people are dying who you know could have taken the medicine and survived. And and I I haven't done these calculations myself and haven't looked into them a lot, but I've I've read about um, repeated calculations that suggest that. Uh, the FDA's unwillingness to be liable for deaths due to drugs actually causes more deaths from drugs that aren't released in time. Right. right. Yeah, but that that is the kind of thing that is hard to sell to the public, right? And, yes. And, and so it, it comes down to not necessarily what is the most rational decision from a scientific perspective, but what is the most rational decision from the perspective of how the public is going to react to yes. certain things. By the way, uh, before we end, uh, perhaps again, this also is going to be uh, could, could be a, a, the topic of an entirely different episode. But um, in the in the article, in rationally speaking, Ian mentioned the term "mortal luck." Mm-hmm. That term, actually, I don't know whether he intended it that way or not, but um, is the title of a very famous paper by Thomas Nagel. Uh, mm-hmm. about ethics yeah i read that and about how how m- most of the times we we grossly overestimate our ability to actually control our actions and therefore be morally responsible or control the outcomes right the not outcomes, our actions. that's right yeah, yeah. Uh, and therefore be morally responsible the, the, the typical case just briefly uh is you know we all agree that it's a horrible thing if somebody starts drinking and and then drives mm-hmm. and then hits a child that is crossing the street or something like that right and that kind of person, of course, is it's culpable, and his license is going to be suspended. He's going to be, um, you know, going on trial for uh, uh, manslaughter and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yes, but plenty of people do drink yes. a little more than they should. They go, to, they, they get into the car, they drive, and they cross the intersection at a time when there child happens to be no child, right? There, exactly. And then they get at best, you know, or at worst, a tisk tisk from their friends, right? Exactly. They're, but in fact, the idea is that either, you know, the two situations are ident- identical yes. except for luck. And yes. so that either we should, in order to be ethically consistent, either we should blame the, the people in both situations in the same degree, or we should not blame people in either situation to, right. the same, to the same degree. If the only difference is something that has actually nothing to do with the behavior of the person, but has to do with external uh, circumstances. So, But perhaps that's, another, that's a whole different topic. <laughs> I, one last thing before uh, we move on to the picks. One of the only pieces of fiction that really like changed my mind about an issue was exactly on this issue of moral luck. And it was a play called An Inspector Calls, Hmm. in which um, a mysterious inspector shows up at a a wealthy family's dinner party and tells them uh, that he's investigating the death of a a young woman who used to work for them. And he goes through over the course of the play and explains, uh, it's revealed how each of the family members contributed to the downfall of this woman in some way. You know, the father fired her from his factory and the, um, the young uh, like the son in the family got her pregnant and uh, each of them had some role that they played in her death. And so by the end of the investigation, the family members are all like feeling incredibly guilty and, you know, 
wretched. And, and then it's revealed that the young woman didn't actually die. Um, and, and two of the family members are like, Oh, phew, we feel fine. Then they go back to carousing. And then the other two still feel shaken and, and like they, they should still feel guilty for what they did. Um, and so, yeah, this, this, it was fiction, but it functioned as a really nice philosophical thought experiment that got me thinking about moral luck. So, okay. Now we really are out of time. So let's wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the rationally speaking picks. If you're a fan of the Rationally Speaking podcast, I highly encourage you to get your tickets sooner rather than later for the 2013 Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism in New York, New York, from April 5th through 7th of 2013. You can get your tickets at nexus.org. That's N as in Nancy, E-C-S-S dot org. Massimo and I will be there recording a podcast live along with a great lineup of other speakers. Nexus.org. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. It's a 1964 Pulitzer Prize winner oh, yeah, by it's Richard Hofstadter. Yes. I'm actually I'm just in the middle of it now, but I'm enjoying it so much that I just had to uh, pick it as my pick. Um, basically, I've been interested for a while in what the roots are of uh, the anti-intellectualism that I see around me in American society. And, um, you know, I I give a talk on on the uh, phenomenon of the straw Vulcan, which is this, uh, like, caricature of rationality and empiricism as being um, opposed to emotion and opposed to uh, beauty and uh, love and all these other things. And, and I trace the roots back to the romantic poets and uh, how they set up a dichotomy between you know science and reason on the one hand and love and beauty and passion on the other hand. Um, but this book has, uh, by Richard Hofstadter has totally expanded my understanding of where intell- anti-intellectualism comes from. Um, so he, you know, he's an excellent historian and traces the roots back to a bunch of, uh, of themes of American uh, the development of American society, um, like uh, religion and the tension between faith and reason um, in uh, in American society, in, in religion in particular, um, and also to democracy and how the populism of American culture uh, right. and of democracy uh, are seen as being at odds with uh, you know a, a scientific authority telling you what to believe. Right. Anyway, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's a great book. Well, my pick is um, an article by uh, Julian Baggini, uh, who is the editor of the Philosopher's Magazine. This was published in the uh, Daily Mail, actually, in the UK. Um, The article is called 10 of the Greatest Philosophical Principles. (laughs) And it goes very quickly with examples on on 10 of the major ideas in philosophy, basically. And this includes uh, John Stuart, Stuart Mill's Harm Principle, uh, Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason, Aristotle's idea about uh, trying to go for the for the mean between extremes, uh, Popper's falsification principle, and so on. There are several, but my favorite one in terms of particular in the way it is illustrated is Occam's Razor, of course, by William of Ockham, twelve eighty eight to thirteen forty eight, and uh, Bagini explains what the razor is about, and then there is a picture of um, from the of the cast of the show Sex in the City. Uh-huh. which shows an application Why? of Occam's razor. 
the Occam's razor principle has been found in, in uh, has found its way even into Sex and the City. If a man is sending a woman a mixed messages, the simple answer is he's just not and into her. <laughs> <laughs> so there apply you have philosophy it. at its <laughs> apply finest. philosophy at its <laughs> finest. <laughs> so that's my pick. <laughs> Excellent, and I love that it's in list form too. I think more philosophical papers should be written the format, you know. 10 uh, examples Top of such thing, and such. Yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, if, the, if the tabloid and uh, you know, women's magazines have, have learned it, then I think philosophers can, can pick it up too. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I will check it out. Uh, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>